Oh, you thought the run up to 10K would be easy, right? Sitting from 4K to 6K to 8K, and we're just going to continue to rise up, huh? Wrong. What's going on, everybody? It's your boy, Crypto Bobby. I hope you are having a great day, great night, wherever you are watching or listening in from. And today, a lot of interesting things to discuss, and I have a number of interviews coming later from Blockchain Week at Fluidity Summit that you're going to want to check out as well. But one of the big things to take a look at right now is, as you can see on Coin360, we are in the red, uh, and it has been led by Bitcoin. And the thing about crypto that's interesting is when the market goes up, people yell scam, they yell manipulation. When the market goes down, people yell scam, they yell manipulation. Basically, whatever happens, people yell manipulation. And most of the times, it's BS and it's just people being stupid, having no clue what's going on. In this case, it is worth diving into a little bit more because there is some interesting things that occurred last evening, at least for me, while I was sleeping on Bitstamp that triggered a wild move in the cryptocurrency market that you need to take a look at and also worth considering when you might be playing around with stop loss orders or potentially with leverage because that is something that was heavily affected last evening. So we'll dive into all of that and more in today's discussion. Before we get into today's conversation about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency manipulation, as well as a number of interviews from Fluidity Summit, including IDEX, Dharma, Portis, and a number of other conversations want to talk to you folks about my friends over at audible look listening makes us smarter and more connected people there's no better place to listen right now than audible it is where so many inspiring voices and compelling stories open up listeners to new experiences and ways of thinking especially in the cryptocurrency space i think it's important to always be learning about the market how other places are structured as well and what am i listening to right now it's actually the billion dollar whale which is extremely illuminating into the world of traditional finance and some of the corrupt natures around that too. But if you are not familiar with Audible, members get more than ever before. You get to choose between one audiobook per month and then you get two Audible originals as well that you can't hear anywhere else. If you'd like to get started listening today with a 30-day Audible trial and your first audiobook plus those two originals for free, visit audible.com slash cryptobobby or text crypto Bobby to 500-500. Again, if you want to get started with your 30-day Audible trial, go to audible.com slash crypto Bobby or text crypto Bobby to 500-500. So last night, the price of Bitcoin crashed about 18% on Bitstamp, which is a large crypto exchange that some of you might be trading on. The price crashed 18, 20%. Why did that happen? Well, shout out to Loomdart, who's watching this in real time. He noticed that somebody had put up a 2,000 Bitcoin sell wall on Bitstamp, and it led almost immediately to the price of Bitcoin crashing from that 7,600 range all the way down to a low of or so. Now, why is this notable if it's just one exchange, right? You might be thinking, okay, you know, it's just Bitstamp. Does that mean that it's happening on every other exchange? Well, the interesting thing about Bitstamp is that it is one of the exchanges that is utilized for the BitMEX XBT price index. Now, BitMEX, some of you might use it. Some of you might love it. Some of you might hate it and think it's the worst thing on the planet. But BitMEX right now is one of the most, if not the most important exchange and market in the cryptocurrency 
ecosystem because of how liquid it is and because of how much volume is driven on bitmex and 50 percent that is right 50 percent of the price for the price index for xbt which is the trading instrument that bitmex uses to replicate btc 50 percent of that comes from bitstamp the other 50 percent comes from coinbase pro so if the price on Bitstamp is dropping due to somebody putting in a massive sell order, then that will be reflected. That will at least be 50% reflected in the index on BitMEX. So that is why that is incredibly important when you look at what happened with, uh, with the price from Bitstamp. And that led to that massive sell-off of 18%. And also what occurred with that is you had a number of liquidations you had a number of people that had orders on bitmex that were you know, leveraged up and you had about 200 million dollars worth of longs that were liquidated on bitmex because of the start the cascading effect of this one very large 2000 bitcoin sell order that was placed on bitstamp so a lot of people love to kick scream and shout manipulation when it comes down to cryptocurrency most of the time i don't necessarily think it is this is actually a case where it looks pretty clearly like a, a sophisticated individual or organization with enough money in the bank to pull this off was able to successfully game bitstamp and bitmex it's kind of confusing because you have two bits but bitstamp and bitmex simultaneously to affect the market in a very significant way eventually across all exchanges because now all exchanges are, are down pretty substantially so it is something where you have both bitmex and bitstamp really affecting how the rest of the markets will play out to a to a greater effect and suzu shout out to suzu he did a fantastic job just summarizing kind of the situation as a whole and he said looks like a mark price exploit by placing a large sell as we talked about on bitstamp which is one of the two oracles price oracles for the market on bitmex to trigger liquidations on bitmex in effect they ended up triggering 200 million dollars of longs that got liquidated on bitmex and then he goes to show that you actually would have been fine if you were leveraged long on some other exchanges like Bitfinex, which actually didn't go below six or $7,000, whereas BitMEX went all the way down to $6,400. Now, we're sitting above $7,000, sitting at about $7,100. But the interesting point to this, uh, and shout out to Eric Connor for tweeting about this, and it's interesting, I think a lot of people might argue with this, but you know, he says, a whale crashes the entire crypto market 20% in five minutes with a single sell order on the books and people think an ETF is actually coming. And it is a fantastic point because when you look at what happens, you look at the argument right now for an ETF and a lot of people say when ETF, when ETF. And I literally sat in on a panel at Consensus where uh, Jake Travinsky was moderating and there were a number of, of lawyers and, and regulators that were talking about when is an ETF coming? What What is happening to uh perhaps ensure an etf when will the time frame be and a number of other components around the etf this is one of the biggest things that will likely prevent an etf not just the manipulation as a whole but also the fact that in many ways bitmex which is an unregulated offshore cryptocurrency exchange is one of the ones that really leads price discovery for the entire cryptocurrency market the other day arthur tweeted out there was 10 billion dollars in daily volume on bitmex which is insane it's incredible i think he tweeted that on the 12th 10 billion dollars in volume on bitmex 
on the 12th. It is one of the most active, really the most active, and I think right now the most important for Bitcoin and for Ethereum in many respects exchange out there. I think you have BitMEX, then you have Binance, and then if you're looking at like quote-unquote legit exchanges, maybe Coinbase Pro, but even then that still follows BitMEX. But when you look at that and you, if you are a regulator and you see, okay, you know, Bitcoin is becoming more legitimate. It's becoming uh, maybe more regulated and we want to offer a product on it. And then you say, oh, wow, somebody just put in a 2000 Bitcoin sell order and the entire market went down 20% basically in one quick wick. Like what would that do for, for investors in the, you know, in the, in the larger space? How would, how would that look upon us if we create an ETF for that? And it probably wouldn't look too great. So something to consider when you are thinking about ETFs and when you look at something like this. Now, outside of the manipulation, or maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, who knows. But outside of what happened last night, I have a ton more content coming for you right now from the Fluidity Summit uh, during Blockchain Week in New York. That is at the tail end right now, but it was a really great week uh, in summary between Fluidity Summit, Consensus, I had a chance to speak on a panel there. There's ETH New York happening tonight. A lot of great conferences, a lot of great just people in general. The coolest part about Blockchain Week for me is not necessarily the conferences as a whole. It's just getting a chance to have a lot of individuals in the cryptocurrency space and the blockchain space in the same city at the same time and, and getting a chance to just meet a lot of the people that you talk to online and hang out with and see a lot of you individuals as well. So shout out to everybody who I got a chance to meet at Consensus and all those other places. But let's hop into the content from Fluidity Summit. As somebody who's gotten a chance to use Dharma before uh, and a fan of, of what your team is building, for anybody who doesn't know, what is Dharma? Yeah, of course. So Dharma is the easiest place to borrow and lend cryptocurrency. We essentially want people from anywhere in the world to be able to either borrow with a few clicks or lend in an interest with a couple of clicks. And one of the interesting things uh, you just had, uh, I think Brendan, who is one of Dharma's co-founders, was speaking earlier and talked about the kind of three different like waves or levels of, a, of adoption kind of. And right now, crypto native, and then there's kind of the extended period. And then at some point in time, looking for like Dharma and similar types of products, maybe 10, 20 years out to kind of subsume legacy yeah. finance. How are you working on just making Dharma and like the crypto ecosystem just more usable because i think you guys have done a really good job with user interface and, and the experience as well yeah totally so like usability in ux is like a big big focus for us like we don't think and you know, we love DeFi, but we don't think new users are going to be able to kind of come in and be comfortable let's say sourcing funds from a decentralized exchange and then signing transactions on metamask we think it's a bit difficult for them to do. So, you know, things like Dharma Key, which were essentially allowing users to sign transactions with a four-digit pin, just like they would any, any bank account. And similar to kind of like the way we were thinking about it at Dharma is we think there are sort of concentric circles of users. You have like your core DeFi enthusiasts, and then, you know, moving kind of further up, you have, let's say, like Coinbase users, people who signed up with an account. You know, I think there's like 30 million registered users. And we really do want to almost like dumb down the experience and make something that they're comfortable with and they know how to use. So one thing we talk about a lot is like dollar-denominated interest, right? You could lend DAI or USDC, which we're adding soon, right? So now anyone in the world can now earn interest on the dollar. And like Brendan said, we kind of see that as like almost that second phase where it's like, it's market expansionary, right? It's taking something that's relegated to DeFi now, but then making it kind of usable and understandable to a more general audience. And with Dharma and what you're building, I think one of the things that a lot of people and has, has brought, brought Dharma a ton of, I think, users and also kind of money within its its overall system has been 
you know, people looking for, for yield in the cryptocurrency space, and you know, there has been solid yield on Dharma for products like DAI and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about just like how maybe the market has evolved to people seeking yield on, on places like Dharma? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, yeah, so our interest rates right now, we are setting them and they're very much benchmarked to like the stability fee, right? And so Dharma is actually fulfilling like a core use case that multi-collateral DAI is supposed to have and like a savings rate. Um, and yeah, I mean, so in multi-collateral DAI, you're supposed to have a savings rate to essentially offset a high stability fee. So a higher fee would cause a higher rate and more people would buy and that would kind of like bring the price back to a dollar. But that doesn't exist yet today. And so, you know, we've been lucky in that we can just charge a much higher interest rate and borrowers are willing to borrow. So lenders on the other side can earn 14% on the dollar. So we've kind of gotten lucky with timing. But yeah, like you said, like yields are going up just because there is no savings rate for DAI. Yeah, it's been, it's been really fun to watch the, I think the competition in the like DeFi space in general between what you're building, what Compound is building, and Get Nuo is like a newer entrant into the market, and then obviously Maker. Um, it's, it's been fun to watch and kind of everybody just like upping, upping the game of everyone else. Um, what's, what's next for Dharma the next like say six, 12 months? Like what are you guys really building towards? Yeah, totally. So I'd say like, you know, more recent features we're definitely going to be adding like USDC. Um, you know, we love DAI, we're big supporters of DAI, but definitely more institutional types, market makers, bigger trading firms are more comfortable with USDC. Um, and you know, I don't want to speak too soon, but Bitcoin, Bitcoin will be coming to Dharma in some, uh, in some capacity, so look out for that. Where are you uh, doing venture investing and why is blockchain a consideration there? It's a, okay, so I'll answer your first question. Why do we invest in fintech and, and blockchain? So there's a lot of opportunity to disrupt uh, the financial industry and there's a lot of efficiencies that we could see that if applied within our company could create a lot of synergies and revenue growth and happier customers. That's why we're looking into this opportunities, especially uh, with Fluidity Factor around. I'd uh, like to learn what's out there, what's up and coming, and maybe something that we could share within the company that uh, could help us look at or consider other opportunities uh, within the blockchain space. Awesome, and, and as you've looked at, I think, maybe investments in the, in the greater FinTech space, but also maybe in the blockchain space, are there any specific areas or efficiencies that you feel like have potentially the greatest opportunity for disruption by this type of technology? Uh, it will be the privacy um, area because there's still lack of trust within transactions, especially in the commercial real estate uh, space, secondaries, right? I think that's one, I'm sure, in your world, you'll have more, but that's one area I think that there, there's a great opportunity and a lot of appetite from the investors. And, and I'm kind of curious of this because I, I just kind of like hearing it from, from somebody who comes from, sounds like a more traditional investing background. How have, how have you been able to kind of learn and absorb the, the, the things that are thrown at you from the blockchain space? Because it's a very, I think, kind of different and unique landscape. Like how have you kind of gone about learning and adding knowledge in that sector? Yeah, so I'm very privileged that I came from another corporate venture firm prior to Fitch Ventures. And then simultaneously, I was studying at Yale University, wherein I was really involved with our FinTech club and the PVC club. So I was able to integrate one my my investor head, and everyone is the curiosity aspect of my life, which is what is this? Um, can you explain it to me in layman's terms? And how does it apply to the use cases that I might could apply to my current company that I work for? So that's how I get to learn this and realize how much 
this could bring or how much value it could bring to the current um, system or the way we do business basically. And one of the things I think that has been really interesting as somebody with you know, arguably the most prominent position in the decentralized trading ecosystem right now on Ethereum is the research that came out recently with, I think it was Phil Diane from Cornell talking about what is being called like front running 2.0. And you've had some interesting commentary as far as how IDEX is specifically built and how that helps to mitigate a lot of those issues. Would love your thoughts on just like the hybrid DEX model that you've taken and how it alleviates some of those issues. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So one of the challenges when, when trading on a decentralized exchange is this idea of trade execution and what entity is responsible for trade execution. Uh, if you think about trading, one of the things you want to be certain of is that when you show up and you try to buy an order, that if you're the first one there, you actually get that order, that someone else can't come at a later date and jump in front of you. That's the, the term front running. Whenever you're relying on a decentralized network, like the Ethereum network, to manage trade execution, you leave yourself open to the possibility of front running. So in this case, we've actually had what you, what you uh, correctly described, a hybrid approach, where we still use a smart contract to custody funds and settle trades. However, the trade execution is managed by us, IDEX. So when users authorize trades with their private key, it's first executed off-chain in our infrastructure. Um, another analogy is a state channel, where you're signing these messages off-chain and agreeing to these transactions and only going to the blockchain for final settlement. So the end goal is that we're able to keep the decentralized fund custody and trade authorization where no funds can move without using your private key, but everything happens in real time and with certainty. You don't have that risk of front running. Yeah, I think that's, it's it's really interesting to watch the, the narrative develop and, and come to light because I think there have been a lot of, you know, some, some arguably some groups have like thought, like, like yourself, have, have thought ahead of time of this issue. And I think some people have either you know, kind of choose to ignore it in some respects or just you know, downplay it. And it has been really interesting to see with the research that Phil and the rest of the folks at Cornell had done, you know, getting mainstream press and Bloomberg and all these other places talking about this kind of like new generation of front running, what that's done and how it's also kind of shown a light on this cottage industry of basically front running trades on Ethereum that a lot of people didn't even know existed. So it's been, it's been really interesting to watch that develop. Yeah, the, the report was really insightful. It was really cool to see some academic rigor behind it, right? And what, and what you found was people were getting into a bidding war, uh, paying higher and higher Ethereum gas prices to try to get these trades and, and front run them. Um, and, and you're right, it's been interesting to see the evolution because there's in some ways there's a philosophical uh, kind of component to it of, of the level of decentralization. You know, people say decentralized exchanges, but really there's a ton of different parts of the exchange that can be decentralized. And it's, a, it's not a very precise term. Um, and so in our case, you know, we admittedly uh, are, are taking some elements of centralization in order to solve this problem. Um, you know, so we, for example, are unable, people are unable to trade directly with our smart contract. You have to go through IDEX so that we can then coordinate these trades and prevent the front running. Um, so now we've, you know, we've kind of addressed that issue, but we're now looking at other ways that we can make it more open and transparent um, to, to, to ensure users and give them the certainty that we're not doing anything malicious with the centralization that we do have. Yeah, the point of, of different levels of decentralization, I think, is is a really good one because there are absolutely varying levels of decentralization and like having the like quote unquote fully decentralized model doesn't always work the best and often 
know, sometimes opens the, the consumer, the actual user up to a variety of issues. So it's been interesting to watch that develop and also just like, I think a lot of, you know, the conversation previously was around like decentralized exchanges and now some of that conversation is even shifting to like just non-custodial, like as long as the exchange is necessarily holding the keys, like maybe we can categorize it in that way. So that's been, it's been fun to watch that narrative develop and kind of see how how certain venues have, have adjusted things. What's next on the agenda for, for IDEX and for your greater team in the next like six months to a year? What are you guys working on? Yeah, thanks. So we got a couple cool things in the pipeline. So we think that the, you know, in particular this research and our kind of our user adoption has borne out the idea of this hybrid model, that it's a great approach to keep decentralized, as you said, non-custodial, right? So the fund custody is decentralized, managed via users and a smart contract, but the other components are centralized for the performance and coordination benefits that it brings. Um, one of the things we're looking at is how can we reduce the cost of using the Ethereum network for custody and settlement. So a fun fact, in 2018, Ethereum miners earned $148 million from gas fees, and IDEX users paid $4.4 million of those fees. Um, it's a huge cost for using any decentralized application and an area that is a big focus of ours. So we're working on a layer two solution that will uh, essentially change the way we send information to the blockchain so that we have to do it less frequently and uh, with less information so that it's just a lot more cost effective to use the application. Um, we're also working on a new UI and a new UX that's informed by working in this environment over the last year and a half. So, um, you know, there's in many ways our exchange is, is very similar to a centralized platform, but there's other things that are very unique just given the fact that all of your actions require approval from a private key. So we've got a lot of insights and feedback from customers that we're using and incorporating into this new design. Great, that's that's awesome to hear. So many updates are coming uh, on your end. And from, I guess, the perspective, and maybe this is just like a personal perspective, but you know, when you are building these things out and all these different improvements and potentially kind of layer two, state channel type of uh, improvements to I guess it's going to continually advance the user experience. Any thoughts on what's happening with the improvement of Ethereum and kind of the the, the roadmap of like Ethereum 2.0? Do you have anything specifically that you feel like might be advantageous to to how you're building or to help out the the user experience for people you know trading on IDEX? Yeah. So in that respect, we're kind of doing a, a very focused layer two approach because we have a very specific use case and that really helps in terms of honing in on the design and getting something to market relatively quickly. Um, and then, you know, once we get that, we're going to look at how can we generalize this a little bit more. We might have applicability for more projects or even for the Ethereum network itself. So, um, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that layer one solutions should update extremely slowly and extremely carefully, especially now that there's billions of dollars of value on top of these networks, right? So, um, you know, I, I hear the argument from many people within the Bitcoin community that if all Bitcoin ever is, is a kind of a, think of like a shipping container layer for large settlement transactions and everything else is done in layer two or centralized solutions, then even that's an amazing innovation, right? To have this alternative reserve currency that can move large amounts of value around, even if there's a level of trust to get to the end user to, for that kind of last mile of, of digital value. 
So I think the same analogy could be made for Ethereum, and I think uh, the work they're doing on layer one is fantastic, but I think a lot of the layer two stuff is progressing to the point where I hope uh, a lot of applications will be similar to us, where we don't feel so uh, kind of handcuffed or reliant on Ethereum itself. Late 2017, early 18, a lot of people are talking about security tokens and like tokenizing the world, and there was this big expectation that it was going to maybe happen very quickly. And I think a lot of people, I don't know if they've lost interest. There's definitely still a lot of interest, but like maybe it just hasn't happened as quickly as as some people were expecting. Um, what do you think needs to happen for the more in-depth adoption of, of tokenized securities? I would say that there are um, a couple of major barriers that exist in the market. Uh, first is lack of institutional trust, and the second it's pretty closely connected. It's the lack of high-quality projects, because the main interest that we have seen... Yeah. yeah, how about quality deals? So, like, you need to get investors interested. But the majority of projects that we've seen tokenizing are going for SDOs, where the X ICO startups so quickly saw it as just a new opportunity for fundraising. And for scam. Well, <laughs> yeah, there's an opinion like that. So, we need to see a lot of high quality deals to see real businesses uh, with profits tokenizing their equity or debt and uh, then we will see more institutional investors coming in. There are a lot of amazing guys out there creating the infrastructure for this uh, to be able to happen, like Dave from Vertala, for example. Uh, but I think it will take maybe half a year, a year or so. I think it will be start seeing maybe the beginning of next year already, because we already see the first steps happening. Yeah, actually, yeah. For example, in Germany, Volkswagen uh, Weizen Bank, their bank, they already issued uh, 20 million euro to organize debt. Yeah, with and help of Lydian, yeah, there is also great infrastructure projects. So. so big players are stepping in, they're all kind of dipping their toes in this but it just takes time. I'm excited about Portis. It's something I hadn't heard of until pretty recently, maybe like, let's say a few months ago. It's something we're working with at AirSwap to integrate into the platform itself. And I think you guys solve a really interesting problem, and that is that Ethereum, cryptocurrency in general, but Ethereum is, is difficult to use. What's Portis doing to, to make Ethereum wallets go more mainstream? Uh, that's a great question. And I'm going to say it's even beyond Ethereum, it's just blockchain in general. Okay. You know, if you look at Web 1 and Web 2 of uh, internet and apps and mobile applications, if you ask the everyday user how the internet works, they can't answer that. And Portis is really focusing on the user experience for the everyday user, allowing them to be able to engage with the AirSwap or uh, ETHFINEX or even like a OpenSea, which is a marketplace for NFTs. So we created a platform where um, an individual comes to AirSwap if they've integrated our SDK, and they put their email and password in, and that encrypts the wallet with end-to-end -end encryption. And now they're able to use uh, any DAP or DEX or uh, trading platform without knowing they even just used blockchain to sign their transaction and engage in the market. It's, it's, it's awesome, and it's something I've used, and I think it does, like, the, the primary experience for Ethereum right now seems to be MetaMask, or it's just the most adopted one. But it's still like, if you're not into crypto, MetaMask is confusing, but you've kind of replicated the system that people are just used to on the internet of having 
an email address and a password. And if you forget yeah. something, you know, you can reset your password. Uh, so I think it's a really interesting and, and kind of novel approach that will hopefully open up the door for a lot more people. Uh, yeah, one thing about resetting a password, we're non-custodial, so we can't actually reset passwords. But um, if they back up their private keys and or if they host on the cloud, whether it's going to be uh, Google or iCloud, uh, they'll be able to have their password saved. But yeah, it's, MetaMask is a pain in the butt. If you ask anyone, listen, if you came out with instructions that says, to use us, you need to download MetaMask, you need to use MetaMask, then you're going to be locked in on one device. That's a huge barrier to enter the market uh, as being able to use any device, any web browser uh, to be able to log in and use AirSwap. Yeah. And it's it's funny that you bring that up too because I think there's a there's an infographic somewhere that has the steps that are required to utilize ADAPT right now. Right. And it's like, buy Ethereum on Coinbase, send that Ethereum somewhere, put it somewhere else, do this, do that. And it all it all kind of just jumbles together. And I don't know what, I don't know what this guy's doing over here, Crypto Man Ron. I, <laughs> Crypto Bobby, how are you? <laughs> doing real well, I'll get you, on, get you on a little bit. But I appreciate you coming on too. And uh, I mean, as, as far as things to look forward to with Portis in the next like six months, what are you guys building? Um, actually, by the end of the month, we're releasing uh, on mainnet in partners with Tabuki is the gas station network. Uh, so any uh, DAP that wants to sponsor the transaction fees, the gas fees, uh, our gas relay will make it so any new user doesn't have to pay any transaction fees. Um, and they can just come on board without having to pay any gas. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation in regards to both Bitcoin and cryptocurrency manipulation from what happened with the Bitstamp issues, as well as the conversations, uh, the second round of conversations that I had over at the Fluidity Summit. I really enjoyed speaking to everybody. It was a, it was a wonderful experience and looking forward to continuing to bring you similar content like that. If you enjoyed the episode, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a review. If you enjoyed, it would mean a lot to me personally. So thank you so much for your time. And as always, if you need anything, feel free to reach out on Twitter, on emails at crypto underscore Bobby on Twitter. Look forward to hearing from all of you. Have a great day.